Hey, welcome back to the Flex the Diet podcast. Today I've got a great interview with Dr. Greg Potter. We talked all about uh, resiliency, a lot of stuff on sleep, like certain things about the best dose of melatonin. Uh, there are other supplements that can help with sleep, such as L-theanine, and even range across the board into some pathologies like PTSD, a traumatic brain injury. I ran my crazy uh, kiteboarding supplement routine past him in case I get dropped on my head out of the sky. And just really fascinating uh, interview. I think you'll really in- enjoy this. Uh, so Dr. Greg Potter is an expert on circadian rhythms and how they interact with nutrition and sleep. Uh, he was formerly a content director over at Human OS, their good friend, Dr. Uh, Dan Party. And now Greg is helping with some nutrition consulting and has his own nutrition company, uh, Resilient Nutrition. We talk about that also. I uh, talked briefly about his background. He worked at the University of, of Leeds, and his background is actually in exercise physiology which is awesome. So the beginning part you know, takes a little little while for us to get into it, but kind of wide-ranging topics here, the overall arching theme related to resilience and the role of sleep. So enjoy this podcast coming up with Dr. Greg Potter. As always, this is brought to you by the Flex Diet Certification Go to flexdiet.com, F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T.com. The certification will be opening up again in early January 2021. So go to the notifications list at the top to get on the wait list. That'll put you on the list where you'll get access before everybody else. And I'll probably have another cool uh, bonus for you there. And flexdiet.com. Sign up there, get on the newsletter, and enjoy this podcast from Dr. Greg Potter. Hey, what's going on? It's Dr. Mike T. Nelson here on the Flex Diet Podcast, and we are back talking about resilience and many other topics today with Dr. Greg Potter. Welcome to the show, doctor. Hey, Mike. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, thank you. And you're... Hanging out in London right now, so hopefully everything is going okay for you. Christmas is approaching, so I've got no complaints, and there's lots of tasty food around. That suits me (laughs) absolutely fine. Yeah, that's always good. Um, So how, for listeners who may be under a rock or not familiar with you, give us just a little bit more info on your background and then how you got interested in the topic of resilience. I think most listeners are probably not familiar with me. And my background is largely in exercise science. So I studied exercise science for my undergrad and my master's degree. And in between those, I also worked briefly in professional rugby at the Rugby Football Union. And as I was going through that process, I recognized that biological rhythms in sleep are very important and went on to do a PhD at the University of Leeds, which focused on the intersection between biological rhythms, sleep, nutrition, and metabolic health. Uh, 
But I did those degrees because I've always been fascinated by how lifestyle in general affects our performance and also our long-term health. And since then, I've been involved in a few different projects. But right now, I am chief science officer and co-founder of a company based in the UK named Resilient Nutrition. And in that role, I spend most of my time working on product formulation. But I also work with some athletes, athletes who represent our brand. So they're primarily ultra endurance athletes. And I really enjoy that side of the job, too, because coaching is something that I've done for about 13 years now nice yeah very cool very cool well i made you go into exercise science that's what i did my phd in so great topic of course yeah <laughs> i think it came down to teenage insecurity let's be honest i was playing rugby when i was 12 and hurt my back and that was right around the time i became interested in girls too and off the back of that injury, I started going to the gym, became increasingly interested in nutrition, spent far too long reading things like men's health, but slowly found better sources of information. And when I was going through what are called GCSEs and A-levels over here, so my education around the ages of 15 to 18, I was spending a lot of my free time reading elite FTS and several other related websites and also became interested in science in general and i had a, a place at university to study english literature and recognized that if i was spending all of my free time finding out about performance nutrition and strength training and related topics then i was probably on the wrong trajectory <laughs> got it and <clears throat> How did you get interested in sleep? Because you've published areas in sleep and obviously have more formal education in there. It sounds like it was more of the intersection and coming at it from a performance angle. It wasn't really. I think I first became interested when I heard a couple of people speak about sleep on some podcasts, probably around 2010 or so. And then off the back of that, I started reading some books and I just found the whole thing fascinating and to this day it's a subject that the more that I find out about it the more intriguing it becomes because there are so many unsolved mysteries within the field of sleep research and I think that that field is in its infancy too which is true of the exercise science research world too sure but I think that sleep is such a fundamental human behavior and it's not quite such a niche subject, niche subject as exercise science that it's surprising that the research into it has only been going on for a relatively short period of time. Yeah, I've always been, <clears throat> I'm not very, I'd say, up to date on a lot of the sleep research. But to me, it's always been fascinating that at a base level, I believe the human body is survival orientated. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we'll literally entirely shut down, which I know is an oversimplification, but we have to take a good, you know, third of our day to be not really cognizant of what's going on potentially at a risk of being eaten by a lion or something similar would give us data that there has to be super important reasons for sleep. 
But yet, if you ask a very, which I would ask you this question, like why, why is it that we sleep? I mean, it's we have some data, but it still seems like a lot of it is a, a big mystery and an unknown. Yeah, and this is something that people go back and forth about a lot. And I don't think that there's a unified theory of why we sleep. With that said, I think that there are plenty of things that we can point to that show the importance of sleep and some of the functions that it fulfills. And I think that it's probable that it has some different functions in some different species. If you look across species, then no one thing seems to strongly predict how much sleep a species needs. But there are a few factors that do relate to that, including things like the type of diet they consume, so whether they're carnivorous or omnivorous or herbivorous, social dynamics, how complex their nervous systems are. And then, of course, there are some things that are common to species. So I think that sleep is a period of adaptive inactivity. So it optimizes when we're active and for how long. And one of the functions it probably fulfills is energy conservation, but that's probably a very small function. But I think a lot of the functions of sleep relate to its effects on the brain. And there are various relevant theories, but one of them relates to the activity in our synapses. And as we're awake during the day, exploring our environments, the strength in inverted commas of various synapses in our brains increases. And when we sleep, it's a period in which there's a selective downregulation of the strength of some of those synapses so that we only hold on to the most pertinent information. And then there are some other factors at play too, like physical restoration and so on. And I think that it doesn't make sense to think about sleep without contrasting it with wakefulness. And fundamentally, I think that sleep is the price that we pay for wakeful behavior. And it's therefore really to prevent malfunction during wake. But the fact that sleep deprivation has been used as a form of torture in many countries for eons tells us a lot. Yeah, I always think of what happens when you do the opposite, right? So what happens what loss of function do you get and where do different functions drop off once someone is more on the sleep-deprived scale? And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think some of the processes you talked about with different synapses is that a lot of the learning more or less takes place during sleep. So we have kind of the stimulation, different synapses kind of get marked with different chemical messengers during the day. And then at night, it's kind of like this... <clears throat> house cleaning effect where, ooh, we need to get rid of this guy. Ooh, this is a good one. We did a lot of stuff <laughs> over here. Let's just, you know, make sure this is nice and robust and, oop, don't need this one anymore. And then when we kind of impair that process of sleep, no matter how high quality of work we did or what we did during the day, we see sort of a diminished result from that because we're kind of skipping over or at very best diminishing that process during sleep. Mm-hmm. I think there are a couple of things you mentioned there that are worth picking up on. One is this idea of housekeeping. And in the last seven years or so, there's been a lot of interest in the glymphatic system, which is a bit like the brain's waste disposal system. Mm -hmm. 
And during sleep, we have these large, slow waves during the deepest stage of sleep. And those seem to influence cerebral blood flow and thereby the flow of fluid through the glymphatic system. And during this stage of sleep, the spaces in the system open up and that flow of fluid helps wash the debris that's accumulated with metabolic activity during wakefulness out of those spaces, clearing out toxic waste that could otherwise be detrimental. So that's one thing. And then you're also touching on the roles of sleep and learning and memory. In relation to synaptic homeostasis, one thing that does seem apparent is that sleep does free space, neural real estate if you like, to learn new things. So even a brief nap during the middle of the day will help with subsequent learning, for instance. But then sleep is also important to things like the consolidation of memories and erasure of information too, and different stages of sleep are probably differentially important to this. So for example, during stage two non-REM sleep and the deeper stage of sleep, there's transfer of information from the short-term limited storage depot in the hippocampus to regions of the neocortex, which are more like a long-term vault for information. And then during REM sleep, that stage in which we dream, our skeletal muscles are mostly paralyzed, not essential muscles like respiratory muscles and cardiac muscle. But because of that, our brains have free reign to explore different motor patterns, for instance, without risk of us acting those out. And so that stage of sleep is probably very important to things like motor learning, but it's probably important to creativity and to the evolution of intelligence too, and that there is that free space in which to try out different things and create a virtual model of the world if you like to try and better understand how we interact within it yeah that's one thing i tried for a while but i eventually gave up on it because the practice was it was kind of a pain but is my thought was okay if i can learn to you know wake up during my dreams and control my dreams could I practice new motor patterns like, you know, kiteboarding, doing jumps or heavier deadlifts and mm. then go back to sleep the rest of the night and reconsolidate those patterns? But in essence, I could do it without any fear response or worry of damage, quote unquote, to the system. But mm -hmm. I wonder, would that even... If that did work, which I honestly gave up after about eight weeks because it was a monster pain in the ass in my life, <laughs> um, I always wonder, would it even transfer to real life because it it is so different? But any thoughts on that? Yeah, a few thoughts. So one is the REM sleep, that particular stage of sleep in which we do most of our dreaming, not all of our dreaming does seem to be important to motor learning in general. But what you're touching on is lucid dreaming. Right. And that is when we're conscious during our dreams. And during those dreams, we often have some control over the contents of the dreams too, although that's probably not an essential part of lucid dreaming per se. And about half of people will experience at least one lucid dream over the course of their lifespan that they remember. But it does seem that it's somewhat trainable. And in recent years, there's been a resurgence of interest into dreams and into whether 
lucid dreaming training has some potential therapeutic applications. And there's been some fascinating research published very recently by people like Jason Ellis showing, for instance, that you can take adults who have insomnia and some related psychiatric issues, anxiety and depression, and you can put them through a short-term intensive lucid dreaming training program lasting only a couple of weeks and quite dramatically improve their insomnia severity as well as some of the anxiety and depression symptomatology, which is fascinating. And Mm. the strategies that people use are probably some of those that you tried, Mike, but they include things like keeping a dream diary and then within those dream diaries, identifying unusual elements within dreams and then using a technique named auto-suggestion in which you take that element and if you recognize it within a dream, you use that as a trigger to cue lucid dreaming. But then there are some other strategies that people will try out too. So some people, for instance, will use an alarm to wake themselves up during certain stages of dreaming, which they think that they might be particularly likely to be lucid dreaming at that time. There are also reality checks that people will do over the course of the day. So a common one is just to look at your hand And ask yourself whether you are awake and in daily life or if you are in fact dreaming. And people in that particular study, I think, set a timer on their phone every hour to remind themselves to do that. And the point is that those people could increase their frequency of lucid dreaming. And it does have some other potential applications too. So, for example, it might be helpful in PTSD. One of the problems that arises in PTSD is that people experience nightmares that relate to stressful experiences. And what will happen is that their nightmares will be so distressing that they will spontaneously awake from them. And if we return to the idea of rapid eye movement sleep being a safe place in which to explore previous experiences and try and make sense of the world, then it's as if their mind is like a broken record. They keep waking up from this particular stage in the record and they never quite manage to process it and get to the end of the track. But if they can lose a dream, then they can take control over their dreams. They can reduce some of that negativity within the dream and thereby potentially have some positive effects on their symptoms and their daytime function. But going to your particular example, Mike, and whether it's possible to practice motor skills during lucid dreaming in a way that facilitates you improving those mode skills in the rest of your life. I don't know if that's been studied. It hasn't to my knowledge, but it is something which is definitely worthy of exploration. And I think that it makes some mechanistic sense and it wouldn't surprise me at all if it was proven to be beneficial. Yeah. Cause if anyone's ever had a, a lucid dream when you're doing it or even just dreams in general, I mean, you are absolutely convinced that it's real <laughs> when it's going on, which to me is fascinating. And then I don't know if there's any research on this, too. You talked about someone looking at their hands. So one of the cues I tried to use was looking at uh, clocks or watches. Mm-hmm. So yep. I'd wear a watch. And so I tried to train myself every 15 minutes when I was awake to look at the watch and ask myself, am I dreaming or awake or what time mm-hmm. is it? And I noticed that in dreams, and again, this could just be me, that you can't really get a sense of time. 
Like even mm. looking, I remember having a lucid dream looking at the clock mm-hmm. and I couldn't figure out what time it was. And then I was like, oh, I'm dreaming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and that is a common experience. There's a complete distortion of time. And I think people often wake up from their dreams feeling as if they've been stuck in that dream for, right. for days. And the bout of dreaming might have actually lasted several minutes. Is that related to areas of the brain that basically are helping with our perception of time, right? That gets into, you know, different flow states and how you may have a a dilation or a compression of time. And, you know, at the end of the day, time is basically kind of a, I don't want to say a neural construct, but it's not as static as what we think it is. It's more of a, I guess, almost a perception per se. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know is the short answer, but that certainly makes sense. So it wouldn't surprise me whatsoever if that was the case. Yeah, that's something I've been interested into. Um, Related to the PTSD, um, I just read some of the research on it, and I've been kind of fascinated for several years now about how someone can have a very, you know, traumatic type experience there's also a, a post-traumatic growth that can potentially happen from it. There's also PTSD that can happen, and sometimes there's not that much of a change. And there's some preliminary research that I think you touched on that quality of sleep after an event may predispose one person to one direction or the other. But the theory is if you had a traumatic event and your sleep is disrupted for the next two nights, you can't enter that REM state, you're missing out on some of that processing that, as you mentioned, the record just gets kind of stuck there, where if you can get high-quality sleep, maybe post one, two nights, I'm not sure of the duration, that you can then process that information and kind of reach the completion in the end, and then you may end up with a more positive result than a quote-unquote negative result from a similar traumatic event. Yeah, and I don't know much about PTSD, but I've heard that too, and that makes complete sense to me in the context of how sleep influences responses to a variety of stresses. So in the case of vaccines, for example, if we take a salient example, then if people sleep well around the time of the inoculation, then their antibody titers are likely to become much higher in response to the vaccination if they sleep well pre-vaccination sleep is somewhat predictive of those responses. So different stressor, in this case, a psychological one. I'm sure that sleep would influence how we respond to that. And we also know something about sleep being predictive of some other related problems, such as traumatic brain injury. If somebody has a concussion, that will likely disrupt their sleep, but in turn, how they sleep in the following nights will influence the time course of their symptoms and their recovery from the trauma. Interesting. So the theory there being, if you get kind of whacked in the head, if you get better sleep for the next couple of nights, your symptomology would be a little bit better? Yeah, I think people would probably be less likely to experience some of the negative consequences that come with TBI. So that, that might be anxiety, for example, or low mood. No, that's fascinating. I just, uh, 
finished up creating a course for the Kerrig Institute, and they do clinical neuroscience. So I, I work with them in looking at the ketogenic diet in traumatic brain injury. And so on mm. my little, uh, again, this is just what I do for myself, my checklist of stuff. If I'm out kiteboarding and get dropped 20, 30 feet out of the sky on my head and <laughs> have kind of a bad injury, I have ketone esters in my bag to put myself in a state of ketosis. I'll use uh, CBD with a small amount of THC beforehand, just like an over-the-counter supplement, high-dose creatine, high-dose uh, fish oil. And then on the list I have is I would probably just not ride any more that day to risk any more injury and then just go to bed as soon as possible. Does that sound yeah. somewhat sane or is that just batshit crazy? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that all sounds very sane to me. Again, I'm no expert in this stuff, but certainly in terms of brain energy metabolism, the exogenous ketone supplementation makes sense. The importance of EPA and DHA to formation of the brain during early life and the possible effects of those and their ratio to some omega-6 omega fats. That also makes sense. Creatine is particularly interesting to me because of its potential effects on sleep, which I think are probably massively underappreciated because it's an understudied subject. But when people think about things that affect their sleep, they often immediately think of nicotine, alcohol, and caffeine. And the most relevant of these is caffeine. Caffeine is an antagonist to all of the adenosine receptors. And the longer that you've been awake, the greater the accumulation of adenosine in the extracellular fluid in the brain, which then acts on its receptors to promote sleepiness. So caffeine blocks this interaction, thereby reducing that sleepiness signal. If you think about creatine hydrate, then when people supplement with creatine, they boost their phosphocreatine stores and they do so in their brain too. The degree to which creatine supplementation does that in humans is likely lower than how much it does that in rodents, for example. Hmm. However, it probably still does that. And as a result of that, that free adenosine can be more readily recycled to ATP, offsetting the accumulation of that sleepiness signal. And there was a fascinating paper published three years ago by Marcus Dvorak, who I think is no longer in research, but I believe has a paper coming out on humans next year showing something similar. And what he showed was that when you add creatine monohydrate to the chow of rats for, I think, four or five weeks, you quite dramatically affect their sleep architecture. So specifically, their sleep is shortened they spend less time in the deeper stage of sleep. The intensity of the deeper stage of sleep is lower. And then their rebound sleep in response to sleep deprivation is also lower. Hmm. So creatine is clearly very strongly affecting sleep homeostasis. And what is fascinating to me about creatine is that if creatine shortens sleep, and I'm almost certain it does in humans too, and I think that Marcus Dvorak will show you this in the paper next year, then you'd expect it to have negative consequences on the basis of all the literature on sleep restriction and sleep deprivation. Right. However, if you look at all the research on creatine monohydrate supplementation, then it's good across the board. Think about its effects on athletic performance. It boosts adaptations to strength and power training. It might also do so for cardiorespiratory fitness too. 
It improves thermoregulation during exercise, has positive effects on brain function, particularly during sleep deprivation. Yep. There have been interesting studies on rugby skills, for example, but also on cognition. It can have some positive effects on mood in people who have treatment-resistant depression, when used as an adjunct therapy at least. And it also has some favorable effects on cardiometabolic health too, so on glucoregulation, for instance, and homocysteine. So if it's affecting sleep, then it doesn't come with the attendant negative effects of less sleep. So if there's ever a situation in which you can't get enough sleep, there's one supplement you go for, it should be creatine monohydrate. And we don't know what the optimal dose is or anything like that, but I suspect that it's higher than the dose that you would use for exercise performance. So if you think about creatine, people commonly either have a loading phase in which they might consume five grams four times a day or something, or they take three to five grams every day. Maybe during TBI, something more like the loading phase is closer to optimal. We don't know. But if you go for one of those higher doses, you'll want to split up your intake just because it does have quite strong osmotic properties. So if you consume lots of it at once, then you'll probably draw a bunch of fluid into your GI tract and cause some bloating and other related problems too. But Mike, long story short, I think you're doing things in a really smart way. And, and there are potentially a couple of other things that might be helpful. I'll defer to your expertise here, but other things such as citicoline, potentially, mm-hmm. they have some neuroprotective properties, so they might be a useful adjunct. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of cdp choline it's i've used it for quite a while and uh, even just a couple of supplements i helped formulate it i recommended it and now it's becoming pretty popular again i mean the patent still exists on it and the company does enforce the patent so it does tend to be a pricier ingredient so what i've seen on some of the new ones at least in the u.s is it's being touted as the next kind of greatest supplement. And there's a lot of very positive research on it. And Renshaw is one of the main researchers. And then they just chronically underdose it because they're too cheap to put a legit <laughs> like dose in the product. So it's like, yeah, you got part of it right, but oh, didn't quite, didn't quite. Yeah, hurt. <laughs> it's, it's frustrating. There are so many nootropics on the market or purported nootropics at least that contain 100 milligrams of, citicoline whereas if you look at the research then in healthy adults slightly lower doses seem to be beneficial in some contexts so there's a study of adolescents and a study of healthy women both of which use 250 milligrams but in the context of brain injury and vascular dementia and some other neurodegenerative problems higher doses seem to be preferable so maybe half a gram to a gram or closer to the sweet spot yeah oh that's fascinating it's super interesting about creatine too because i'm very similar to you i've i've just recommended it as a general health supplement for probably four or five years now which Mm. to athletic populations not really shocking uh (laughs) but when people ask you like oh what's you know kind of your top supplement recommendations like yeah some protein, maybe a good multivitamin, fish oil, and I'm like, creatine. They're always like, creatine, what are you talking about? I'm like, there's just, every time we turn around, there's more benefits associated with it. Now I can add, you know, some very interesting sleep stuff, thanks to you, to that list. And we have like so much data to show that there's very little to almost no downsides. 
you know, even in, I talked to Dr. Tommy Wood and he was describing an elderly population where I think they were using 10 or 20 grams a day and mm-hmm. you just saw a little bit of GI upset in a few people. Uh, Tarnopolsky did a study with 20 grams a day looking at, I don't remember if it was Parkinson's or ALS, but mm-hmm. extremely well tolerated for like many, many months, you know, so yeah. there's almost like a no downside to it. So even if it doesn't have the next latest, greatest potential for whatever, yeah, we know it's pretty about as safe as you're going to find anything too. Yeah. And I, I think that a dose of 30 grams or so has been studied out to three years plus. Yeah. So no safety qualms whatsoever. But if your sleep is very shallow and you've been taking creatine for a long time, then hopefully a light bulb might have just gone off. So in that case, what would you what would you do? I have an idea, but would you up well, the dose then to try to change the sleep architecture? It depends what the person wants. So if the person's sleep as a result of taking creatine supplementation is slightly shorter and slightly less deep, so maybe they're marginally more prone to waking up during the night. Ah, gotcha. But there's but there's no obvious negative outcome that relates to that. So they don't feel like their daytime function is impaired. They don't feel fatigued. They don't feel like they have difficulty concentrating. And they're performing well in the gym and their cardiometabolic health seems to be good, then I wouldn't worry about it. If, however, you're somebody who has anxiety because of the fact that you don't feel your sleep is very well consolidated and you've been taking creatine, then doing away with it for a period of time while reducing your caffeine intake or eliminating it entirely will likely positively affect your sleep architecture. So at least that would put your mind at rest. Could you go the other direction and do a higher dose to see if it kind of changes sleep the other direction then? So there's like a directionality associated with it? What I think would happen is that creatine supplementation, so if the person has been using creatine for a long period of time, they've probably more or less saturated their brain phosphocreatine stores. So going to a higher dose wouldn't top up those stores anymore if they're full. And they therefore wouldn't experience any additional benefits or effects on their sleep in response to that higher dose. For somebody who is using it acutely, they can probably saturate those stores faster with higher doses. There is also a related metabolite named guanadinoacetic acid, which is probably better at boosting brain phosphocreatine stores. And it has actually been compared head to head with creatine in certain contexts. It's used to feed animals and make them gain weight faster and it's very anabolic at lower doses than creatine but it does come with some potential side effects that creatine doesn't really so for example it might boost homocysteine i'd be fascinated though to see a study comparing guanadino acetic acid and creatine for their effects on brain phosphocreatine stores and sleep architecture but the research on gaa is relatively scant right now yeah i remember looking at that Years ago, uh, I think it was my buddy Dave Barr pointed it out to me, and I've just kind of followed it. And it'll kind of, you know, in esoteric bodybuilding mm. forums and stuff here and there, you'll mm-hmm. see it kind of 
pop up as the latest greatest thing and <laughs> i don't know every time i i check into it similar to you like i there might be something there because it does hint that there's some potential but i remember being a little bit kind of shied away by some of the potential downsides and just mm-hmm. not that much data that i could find at least in humans um unless yeah. you've seen a lot of data in humans there have been a few studies that have come out recently mostly by a serbian guy and his lab which are very intriguing but there haven't been enough studies that I'd be comfortable to take it. And I certainly wouldn't recommend taking it. I suspect that it's relatively benign, but if you're somebody who already has a health profile that would contraindicate it, then I certainly wouldn't touch it, of course. And my guess is that it's probably not more efficacious than creatine at enhancing adaptations to exercise. But its effects on creatine stores in the brain are interesting. And it wouldn't surprise me if they do boost those phosphocreatine stores more than creatine monohydrate alone. Very cool. Do you think some of the other intermediates may be beneficial? I remember talking to you know Dr. Roger Harris about beta alanine mm. years ago, and he was saying there's you know newer data coming out on that. And there's a couple of pieces of data uh, now since then have shown it you know, may have similar benefits kind of to creatine. Now it's obviously operating on a different effect. So kind of any of those bioenergetic intermediates that we've kind of classically used for exercise physiology may hold potential for brain metabolism also. The short answer is that I don't know. And I haven't seen that research on beta-alanine specifically I'm guessing that it relates to its actions as a buffer. Yeah, buffer, intermediate, yeah, similar similar mechanisms as muscle, just, well, as as best we understand it. (laughs) Sure, yeah, but in in terms of other products that have historically been used in the context of sports science and whether they have applications to brain health, I think ketone esters are up there, of course. And there certainly are plenty of overlapping areas that relate to both brain health and to exercise performance. So for example, agents that improve blood flow are often conducive to both vascular function in the periphery and in the brain. Take cocoa flavanols. If you get a high quality cocoa product, and there are a few of those, I think in the UK, there's Acticoa cocoa powder, which is made by Barry Calabau. And in the States, I know that Mars has a very pure extract. I believe it's called Cocoa Via. Mm-hmm. If you consume 500 milligrams to 1,000 milligrams of those on a regular basis, then you'll likely em- enhance your endothelial function and possibly also improve angiogenesis and specifically in certain parts of the brain that are important to things like memory so hippocampus Hmm. for instance and there have been studies of elderly adults showing that when they consume high dose flavanols for a period of several weeks they experience improvements to various aspects of cognitive function improving memory and similarly there have been studies looking at exercise performance and cocoa showing that it might have some small beneficial effects on endurance exercise performance and vascular function during said exercise Hmm. And the same is likely true of beetroot 
beetroot tea, which of course relates to its effects on nitric oxide metabolism and thereby blood flow. And one thing that I find very interesting is how these different things interact because typically and completely understandably, these things are studied in isolation. Right. And when they're studied together, you might expect them to have additive effects, but that doesn't necessarily seem to be the case. And Louise Burke wrote a very thoughtful essay on that a few years ago. And it's a really difficult thing to study. But obviously, in reality, most people who are supplementing with one of these agents are taking others too. And right now, we just don't understand how those different things affect one another. Do they synergize? Do they cancel each other out? We, we don't really know. Yeah, no, that's a great point because in the supplement world, everything is advertised as synergistic effects, right? So mm. for the listeners who already know this, you know, one plus one would normally equal two. Well, if it's a synergistic effect, one plus one is four or five or seven. It's crazy. You know, you need to take them together and our 17 individual products all in one and man you look in the literature and there's there's not a ton of literature on combinations really and from what right. i've seen man if you even see an additive effect that's pretty cool i i can't even think of one like legit study i would say that there was a dramatic synergistic effect I think the only example that comes to mind is the combination of piperine and curcumin. Okay, yeah, I would yeah, I would give you that one. Yeah. Yeah, cuz the, the bioavailability of most forms of curcumin are so poor. Right. And if you take piperine, which is a polyphenol in black pepper and curcumin at the same time then because of its effects on various enzymes that are involved in liver metabolism you can dramatically improve the uptake of curcumin although in recent years there have been new forms of curcumin developed that seem to be much more bioavailable one of them is named theracurmin one of them is named hydrocurc theracurmin is probably the best studied of them it just contains very, very small particles of curcumin. And interestingly, because of that, it seems to probably permeate the blood-brain barrier. And Mike, going back to your kite surfing yeah. concussion example, theracurmin is probably one of those agents that would benefit you in that context. And one thing that curcumin seems to consistently do is boost BDNF and mm. something that you want to support there's, there's been a meta-analysis showing that in recent years. And something that you want to support, obviously, in the context of brain injury is neurogenesis. And while BDNF expression is only a proxy of that, it's certainly an encouraging one. And based on the limited number of studies to date, curcumin does seem to boost brain health in general, at least in people who have impaired baseline brain health. And that's an important distinction because there are many instances in which something that helps people who are in the state of chronic disease or impaired function, the compound might not benefit people who are otherwise healthy. Yes. And I think this is very much true of nootropics. If you're undergoing some sort of duress which reduces your function below baseline, that's when nootropics really come into their own. So take the context of sleep loss. Creatine seems to enhance cognition during sleep loss if you take somebody who's well-rested, creatine doesn't really seem to affect their cognition. 
And that's probably true of, of many of these things that we've discussed. Yeah, no, that's a great point because our brains are wired to think linearly. So like the, the old example I use with athletes all the time is just zinc. It's like, yeah, if you were very deficient in zinc and you take it, you could see your testosterone go up. But mm. if you're sufficient <laughs> in zinc, taking more, your testosterone's not going to go up anymore, which we could argue testosterone going up or down is debatable in terms of performance, depends on where you land on the scale, but within mm. physiologic range. Um, and if you keep taking more and more zinc, now you're going to start having issues with copper depletion and other things mm -hmm. going on. But the the standard media line, especially with supplement sales, is, oh, look at this study done in you know hypogonadal rats that were depleted on zinc. And <laughs> we gave them zinc and it went up like 400%. This is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think I think we've all fallen for those at some point. Yeah, and I mean, I remember taking ZMA back in the day and yeah, me having too. crazy dreams from it. And I've tried it again. And do you think it's the the zinc, the magnesium, or I think it's actually the B six for some reason, or is it just we've all been anchored with the the ronal thought of oh whenever you take zma you just get crazy dreams so that just kind of happens <laughs> yeah it's so interesting that you use that example because i remember buying a fitness magazine when i was a teen and it came with a free sample of zma when it was all the range, oh yeah which was probably Balco. around the time yeah. of the balco yep. scandal and i of course expected to have crazy dreams and i did have the most vivid dreams that night when i took it and if you look at the research on it, however, then the ZMA combination hasn't really been well studied, certainly not in the context of sleep. Right. If you look at the research on zinc supplementation and sleep health, then it doesn't seem to do much. Some of the cross-sectional research points towards some weak effect on sleep, but the actual intervention trials in which people are supplemented with zinc don't tend to show much. B vitamins, likewise, theoretically, they can be important things like supporting melatonin synthesis, which you might expect to have some bearing on sleep, but they don't seem to do much. High doses of one of them might increase the salience of dreams, but that's been shown by one study. And then magnesium is the most interesting of them. Magnesium is not in the same category as creatine for me, but if they're supplements that i regularly recommend taking then magnesium is one of them yep, if, you I would look agree. At the, if you look at us adults then something like 68 percent don't get enough magnesium on a regular basis and the nice thing about magnesium is that if you take too much of it it will probably just cause you some gi distress yeah which is it's not the end of the world and when you take people who have poor cardiometabolic health then magnesium can actually quite potently improve some of those aspects of health blood pressure regulation glucoregulation and so on so i think magnesium taken as bisglycinate or three and eight if you want the brain benefits can be helpful there's only one study to my knowledge on magnesium three and eight and sleep showing that it might have some positive effects in an elderly population but there are reasons to think that magnesium could enhance sleep it, it does seem to have some general relaxation effects if you look at brain ion balance it has a clear circadian rhythm and 
the concentration of magnesium in some brain cells is substantially higher during the sleep period. Hmm. So taking it late in the day probably makes sense because you, you might better support that process and some of those restorative processes that take place during sleep. But compared to some of the other sleep supplements that are out there, I'm not sure that it's a particularly strong sleep aid. With that said, not many sleep aids seem to be that helpful for many people. None of them have very strong effects on things like sleep duration or sleep latency or sleep consolidation. Of the different supplements that have been studied, the best evidence is for melatonin. You look at meta-analyses on melatonin and when people take it, they tend to fall asleep slightly faster and have slightly higher sleep efficiency, which is just the proportion of time that someone's in bed that they're actually asleep. And they might feel subjectively like their sleep quality is slightly higher too. And the right dose for most people is probably somewhere between 300 micrograms and five milligrams, depending on what you're after. In the context of jet lag, it's probably around one milligram. If you want the potential effects of melatonin on oxidative stress and cardiometabolic health, so it might have some blood pressure lowering effects and some glucose lowering effects too in people with metabolic syndrome, then a higher dose might be preferable, maybe five milligrams. And there's also a timed release version. The patented version of that is named Circadium, but there's also an over-the-counter form named Microactive. Two to three milligrams of that might be better at helping people sleep through the night and maintaining sleep. And then there are a couple of other supplements which I think are helpful in some instances, one of which is PEA, yeah. which is an analog of an endocannabinoid, palmitoyl ethanolamide. There's a very bioavailable form of that that's been made recently showing that, and this particular form seems to help sleep in people who have neuropathic pain. So specifically, there was a study of patients with carpal tunnel syndrome showing that when they supplement 600 milligrams of it twice a day, they reduce their pain and thereby improve their sleep. And then some other agents that have some anxiogenic and anxiolytic effects such as L-theanine might be helpful and ashwagandha. L-theanine, the right dose is probably something like 200 to 400 milligrams. And the best studies on ashwagandha generally supplement 300 milligrams of KSM-66 twice a day. So I think those are some of the sleep supplements that are more helpful for most people, but it always depends on the context. And I think that people often look at sleep supplements, they think, oh, that's something that will help my sleep. And it might help some people with their sleep, depending on the source of their sleep issues. But for someone else, the supplements to support their sleep will be completely different. So just as an example of this, there's a sleep disorder named restless leg syndrome, which used to be thought to be idiopathic. So people thought that it didn't influence risk of health outcomes later on. But we now know that it strongly influences risk of disorders and diseases such as Parkinson's dementia with Lewy bodies and interestingly for many RLS patients it seems to be a disorder of iron metabolism in the brain and when they supplement with iron they can dramatically improve their restless leg syndrome hmm. but if you or I might took high dose iron then we would be very unlikely to experience any improvements to our sleep 
potentially risk high oxidation at some point since we're both male. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. We, we probably want to go and give blood straight afterwards. Yeah. Well, that's super cool. That's super fascinating. Do you, What are your thoughts on uh, Phenobute as a sleep supplement? Because I know that's been uh, on the FDA, at least in the U.S., kind of the gray area for many years now. And I'd have to look up again to see what the status was. I heard it's kind of on yeah. the, the naughty list now again, but who knows? <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I believe it is. And I haven't looked at it since 2018. But I remember briefly looking at the literature then, and it wasn't at all convincing that it was a helpful sleep aid. And like you say, I believe it's now regulated. It's certainly regulated over here in the European Union. We are still part of the EU, mm-hmm. at least for the next few weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I wouldn't recommend it. And another consideration here is the veracity of product claims. The supplement yeah. industry is so poorly regulated but if you buy something, especially if you buy something which is a bit gray market, then the likelihood of you buying something that contains what it claims to might not be that high. There was a study published within the last couple of years on melatonin supplements showing that yeah. the amount of melatonin in them varied from less than 100% to more than 400% of the product label claim. Some of them also contain things like serotonin, which is part of the same pathway in the brain so <laughs> you need to be careful when sourcing your supplements and fortunately there are third party testing companies so one of them is consumer lab that do go out take products off the shelves and check them for the presence of banned substances and other contaminants too so you're not part of the membership site of consumer lab and you're interested in sourcing good supplements then that is one route that you might want to explore but just as a general tip thorn and life extension supplements always seem to fare very well on their site and i say that as somebody who is co-founder of a food product company but for the for the products that we don't make ourselves I generally default to life extension because they always seem to contain what they claim to. And they also have a very large product range. Yeah. The whole, there's only like a handful of supplements I recommend, you know, Thorn is one of them just because trying to stay up to date on that is very difficult. And even, you know, places like with, I've toured, you know, Charlotte's web who makes CBD and other, products and that was a couple of years ago that was great you know i signed an nda got to see all the facilities spent two days with them it was great everything about it is awesome they have traceability but at the end of the day i'm not there every day no matter what the the place or the manufacturer is and you get into especially smaller companies i get really nervous about because they just don't have a lot to lose you know if you're generally a bigger company and you've been around for quite a while yeah, if something, you know, goes wrong or your testing doesn't look so good on consumer labs and you don't fix it, you, you have a lot of business to lose. If you're some fly-by-night company that starts up and sells God knows whatever in a capsule and mm. we find out it's just bad or non-existent or potentially toxic or heavy metal laden, whatever, uh, we'll just file bankruptcy, disappear to some island in the Caymans and good luck trying to find us. <laughs> <laughs> That old chestnut. <laughs> the what? That old chestnut. 
What is that? Oh, that's probably a British saying. Just just ignore me. <laughs> oh, you said foul chestnut. Is that right? No, no, that that old chestnut. Oh, yeah, oh no, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, people have been doing that stuff for forever. Unfortunately, yes. Um, so yeah, so tell us some more about the supplements that you're help co-founded right now and working with them. Sure. So the website is resilientnutrition.com and we launched it earlier this year off the back of some work that we did helping two guys get ready to row the Atlantic last year. So one of the things that I do is help prepare people for certain athletic events and help them also with their health and performance in general. And I was helping my friend Ali get Max Thorpe and Dave Spellman ready. We were helping them specifically with their nutrition and also their sleep. And as you can imagine, when you've got two guys who are over 100 kilos, who are going to be rowing for several weeks on end, they need a lot of calories. And they spent most of their time rowing in two-hour shifts, two hours on, two hours mm. off. So we estimated that they'd be burning more than 10,000 calories a day, mm. at least initially. And they therefore needed easy-to-digest, energy-dense nutrition that would support their performance, but also be usable in those conditions. They don't have a fridge or anything on board, so it has to be stable. And what we did is we started playing around with different versions of nut butters, and we came up with a suite of them for the guys, and they used them during the event, loved them. We ourselves use them in different contexts too, including things like knowledge work, but also some other athletic events and while we take no credit for this they did really well they broke the world record at the start of this year and so we thought well is there a way that we can scale this and we since then spent time refining the formulations and now there are four versions of our first product which is named long range fuel and the versions are better suited to different times of day there is a so-called energized version that contains caffeine and L-theanine. And going back to that discussion about mm. things that have been studied together, caffeine and L-theanine is one of those rare combinations that seems to have some additive effects yes. on cognition. And that's well suited to being taken at the start of the day, before knowledge work, and also to support wakefulness if you have to be up during the night. So if you're a night shift worker, for instance... Then we have calm versions, which contain the dose of ashwagandha, which is, that's generally been used in research. So they contain 600 milligrams of KSM-66 ashwagandha per pouch, which is 100 grams. And ashwagandha is a so-called adaptogen. It helps people better cope with stress. It tends to reduce people's subjective feelings of stress, but also some related stress hormones. But interestingly, when people regularly take it, they tend to boost their cardiorespiratory fitness. There was a meta-analysis hmm. published recently looking at the effects of ashwagandha intake on VO2 max, showing that it does have a small effect on improving VO2 max. Hmm. And there have been a couple of studies, too, looking at ashwagandha intake and adaptations to strength and power exercise, showing that when people take it every day for several weeks, they gain muscle mass and strength slightly faster when consuming ashwagandha. So it's not only good for brain health, but it also seems to support exercise performance 
And then both those energize and calm versions are available in so-called rebuild versions, which just contain added whey protein isolate and L-leucine. And that makes them a particularly good meal replacement. We add the L-leucine because it's the one amino acid that seems to independently quite strongly trigger the synthesis of new proteins in skeletal muscle. But it also seems to have some appetite regulation enhancing effects. And in some contexts, it can be useful to, for some other aspects of metabolic health too. And they're all nut butters. They're all based on tree nuts, not peanuts or anything like that. So they contain things like almonds and hazelnuts. And obviously, I'm very biased, but they're really, really tasty too. So that's long range fuel. And right now, I'm working on formulating our next product, which will hopefully launch early next year, which I'm really looking forward to. And it's also a project that we, we try and give back with. It's not just about trying to sell products, but we, for example, give 1% of our sales to a charity that works with governments and communities in tropical countries to protect their rainforests. And given my background, I also try and create useful educational content. So I recently wrote a free ebook about nutrition, which people can download from the website. And we'll have lots more content coming out too in the coming months. So that's resilient nutrition in a four minute nutshell. Nutshell. I like it. Very good. Nutshell, not a chestnut or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Any hints on the on the new product or is it top secret? Top secret, Mike. Okay. Right. I, <laughs> I had to ask, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh. Unfortunately, but hopefully at some point next year we might be over in the u.s and if that's oh, nice. the case then i'll have to get some over to you to try yeah that was my other question do you ship uh worldwide or is it just mainly in the uk right now right now it's in the uk in the next few weeks it will be in europe too so we'll be on amazon over here shortly and then hopefully next year we'll transition to north america too and then ultimately we'd love to be in the asia pacific region so 2021, fingers crossed, would be in North America. But right now, it's, it's just over the side of the pond. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. I know we talked about sort of a subset of resilience related to uh, sleep and other supplements and things that are useful, which I think is always beneficial for a lot of people. So where can people, what's the best way for them to find out more about you and about resilient nutrition? Resilient Nutrition, it's resilientnutrition.com. And we're also on Instagram at Resilient Nuts. And I have my own social media, which is at Greg Potter PhD, which sounds ridiculously self indulgent, but at Greg Potter was taken. I don't post there that much, but I'm going to probably start posting more regularly. And if you reach out to me on there and send me a message, then at some point I will get back to you. Awesome. Yeah, I know. That's always, sometimes you get interesting emails from people. It's like, why do you have to put doctor on everything? It's like, well, sometimes the normal name was taken and it's just the easiest way to get the next normal semi-looking name. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I, I hate being called doctor. It just, it, it feels wrong. I always say I'm, I'm not a real doctor. I'm just a PhD. Yeah, I had that once when I checked into a hotel my assistant made the booking as a couple of years ago and 
She goes, oh, and how was your stay? Oh, Dr. Nelson. I said, oh, it was good. She's like, oh, what kind of doctor are you? I said, well, actually, I did a PhD in exercise physiology. She goes, oh, you don't cut people open? I'm like, no, I'm not a, not a surgeon. She's like, oh, well, have a good stay there, Mr. Nelson. <laughs> uh, do you take any muscle biopsies during a PhD? No, I uh, didn't. Okay. We, Our lab was weird that we were an exercise phys lab, but to get to do any bloods, we had to go to the what's called the Clinical Research Center. And to get IRB approval process was completely separate. And then because of the way the budgets were set up, the GCRC charged us literally an arm and a leg just for us to walk into their building. So mm-hmm. we did everything, unfortunately, possible to avoid that just due to the sheer cost of it. We did do some stuff over there. We did some stuff with um, like nitroglycerin and some other stuff related to flow-mediated dilation, endothelial mm-hmm. function for doing it as a chemical in part of the studies. But unfortunately, no, that's one of those weird things I always wanted to do or in some, I don't know, weird way have done to me, but I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> some masochistic way. Yeah, yeah. Yourself? No, although my undergraduate thesis was looking at the association between quadriceps muscle isoform composition and sprinting and jump performance in untrained young men. Oh, so interesting. Looking at, yeah, we're looking at whether fast twitch fibers associate with performance. But that's that's the closest I've come, and I've I've never I've never been stabbed in the leg in the interest of science. I know. I my good buddy Dr. Andy Gelpin, I'm sure he's like, Well, we can do it here. Um unfortunately all their studies due to the recent COVID stuff are all mm. all on hold. So I talked to him the other day and I said, Well, what are you actually really doing? He's like, Well, not really a lot because you can't do virtual biopsies. <laughs> I'm like, Oh yeah, that would be pretty hard. So yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for all your time today. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. Thanks, Mike. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Greatly appreciate it. Big thanks to Dr. Greg Potter for coming on and sharing all of his knowledge with all of us today. Uh, Super insightful. And again, a lot of good practical knowledge that you can uh, take forward. If you're in the UK, make sure to check out his nutrition company, Resilient Nutrition. Even if you're not in the UK, still check out all the great information that he's put out over many years. Uh, I always enjoy listening to him on other podcasts and reading his work. So this show is brought to you by the Flex Diet Certification. Learn eight different interventions on how to get better body composition and performance without wrecking your health uh, via nutrition and recovery interventions. Certification goes through the top eight related to protein, fats, carbohydrates, ketogenic diets, fasting, neat, exercise, sleep, and more. Each module has a big picture where we talk about the overall concept of the Flex Diet, which is a mashup between metabolic flexibility and flexible dieting. And then each one has about an hour technical primer. So everything you wanted to know about protein metabolism, how does it work, what is the role of branched-chain amino acids, leucine, 
terms you may have heard uber geeks throw around like muscle protein synthetic response, uh, all broken down into a language you can understand. Uh, everything is fully referenced. And then each intervention has five very specific action items. So as a coach, you know what to do with clients. And this is all in a complete system uh, where I show you how to use each one, where to start, and how to know what action item is going to be best for each client at that time. So it allows you a complete system that is done in a very flexible approach. And we also have a ton of expert interviews, uh, everything from Dr. Dan Party, Dr. Stu Phillips talking about protein metabolism from McMaster, Dr. Jose Antonio talking about protein overfeeding, what happens when you feed people too much protein, Dr. Eric Helms discussing flexible dieting, Dr. Hunter Waldman talking about changes in metabolic flexibility and insulin uh, dynamics, and many other expert interviews there also. So that's all in the Flex Diet. It will open up again in January of 2021. I uh, would love for you to be a part of it. Get on the wait list right now. Go over to flexdiet.com, F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T.com. That'll put you on to the daily newsletter, and you will be the first people notified. So thank you again for listening to the podcast. Greatly appreciate it. Always feel free to leave any comments, feedback, or reviews for us in your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much. Outtakes. Cool. Cool. Sounds good. And how are you? How are things your end? How's, how's business been, given the context? It's... You know, it's actually been pretty good. I mean, in all honesty, like income-wise, this year was better than last year. Um, although I've worked probably twice as much just because I haven't been traveling really at all. So since we got back from Costa Rica in March, like everything just got, like the whole year just got wiped out in terms of presentations and even academic stuff. So I'm like, well, whatever. We drove out to visit some of my wife's family in July went kiteboarding in Hood River, and then we did a five, six-week trip, just drove down to Texas, did some kiteboarding down there in October, November, and yeah, I got freaked out because all my clients are mostly online trainers, so I'm like, if their gym closes, why are they going to pay me to do their training? So in like April and June, I just said yes to every online product thingy known to man, because everyone and their brothers like, oh, we need someone to do online stuff. Who's the? Hey, you. We've done this before, and yeah, you know, some of them were okay. Some of them were just when they actually released it. I sold three, <laughs> you know. So some were just right, a right. complete disaster. Maybe they'll sell more next year or whatever. So it's you know, overall, it's been good. Just interesting with all the variability and the. You know, projects would be started, you sign the contract, everything's good, you get 40% done, and then they're like, I don't know, we just can't do this, like, you know, some something happened family-wise or whatever, you don't know, and then just, whoop, cancel it, so that goes away, and yeah, so it's been um, interesting to say the least, but it's it's been okay, which is good. <laughs> it's, it's kiteboarding, a great love of yours. I can see your board there in the background. Yeah, it's my surfboard. I'm like if you ever watched the the show Seinfeld where you had the Cannondale bike in the back, 
So I'm like secretly wondering if like Slingshot will ever watch my videos and be like, oh, there's a Slingshot surfboard in the back. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm doing it backwards. I'm actually trying to teach myself how to surf using a kite first and then go back the other way, um, which I don't know. Everyone else is like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. I'm like, probably, but it's like I can, I'm okay with a kite. And yes, I'm using that to hide like every flaw with the board, but the amount of times I can actually get on a wave is just exponentially higher than if I have to rely on myself to paddle all the way out, try to figure out the timing, you know, all the effort, get to a place where I can actually do it. They actually have waves that are not going to freaking kill me and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, so I'm still trying to do one fugly transition on a board, which I'm not used to riding on boards that are smaller and to move your feet around. It's mm-hmm. just so different, but it's fun. <laughs> Yeah, and you you can do it in a socially distanced way too, which is a bonus. Yeah, which is great because when we were down in South Padre, everyone's like, oh, what are you doing? You're hanging out with all these people. I'm like, it's an island in Texas. There's not many people that come in and out. Most of the people, by definition, are generally healthy. Vast majority of the time, we're outside. It's like we're not that close to people. When you're riding on the water, if you... If you're within six feet of someone else, like something bad probably happened, you know? So it's... So that's been good. But I know even a couple places, they closed beaches. A buddy of mine does a lot of surfing, moved to Puerto Rico. And for a while, they were just completely, he's like, yeah, I live across the street from the ocean. He's like, I can't even go out of my townhouse. I was like, oh. So, yeah. Excruciating. Yeah. You don't surf or kiteboard or anything? Is kite surfing the same as kiteboarding, by the way? Yeah, it's it's the same thing. Sometimes you use a surfboard, sometimes you don't. But same thing. Yeah. I've only been surfing once in Indonesia six years ago, and I was rubbish, as you might imagine. Oh, I'm so hard. That stuff. <laughs> and then, and then I, I actually lived in Sardinia for two months from September until mid-November. And while we were out there, we watched a lot of kite surfing. Oh, nice. Yeah, everywhere. There are four or five hot spots around the island oh interesting uh, you go there at certain times and certain days and everyone is out with their boards yeah i think it's just it's the it's the wind conditions but also it's, it's a beautiful place gorgeous beaches so i sort of regret not trying it while we're out there but yeah I'm trying to convince my girlfriend to move back out there again at the start of the new year so oh just... there you go yeah if you get back there you know take a lesson give it a whirl it's super fun it's a uh kind of a steep learning curve but to me it's also at the same level one of the more i'd say accessible action or extreme sports i don't really like that term but you know if you practice it you can ride relatively fast you have the illusion of of speed of going really fast because you're just going across the water and you know you can learn to do jumps and stuff like that and you know the amount of time it would take you to do a 10 foot jump on a snowboard or skis is probably exponentially higher than you can do it on a kite board and still in theory land pretty soft so it's uh yeah super fun <laughs> i'll just i'll take my creatine and my city with me yeah take a few your yeah. supplements there and you'll be good to go <laughs> i'll brace, brace myself for the concussions yeah yeah cool well thank you so much i really appreciate it and uh keep in touch cool pleasure nice to meet you mike All right. good to see you bye-bye bye-bye